Hey guys, welcome to True Crimes and Weird Times. I'm Kim. And I'm Ashley. Today I will be telling you about Rhonda Henson, who was murdered in 1981 after a Christmas party driving home. And the shot that killed her was almost impossible. And I'll be talking about the life and many deaths of Grigory Rasputin. We've all heard the story of the fall of the Romanovs, but what about the peasant man turned mystic behind the family? And why was he so darn hard to kill? Grigory Yefimovich Rasputin, Rasputin. So I'm going to do it every time. Was born on January 21st, 1869 in a Siberian village named Prokrovsky. See, I can say that, but I can't say Rasputin. Rasputin. <laughs> <laughs> His parents, Yefim Rasputin and Anna Parshakova, had seven other children before Grigory. However, they all died while they were very young. So this makes baby Rasputin's first... This was his first near-death experience. There we go. Way better. Thank you for words. Anytime. (laughs) There wasn't a lot of information on his childhood. I assume back then record-keeping wasn't what it is today. School records. Right. You know what I mean? (laughs) Your permanent record. But also because once he became prominent, once he became well-known, a lot of rumors started flying around. So who knows about his childhood, really? kind of have to weed out what could possibly be true however with his family being local siberian peasants in the mid 19th century he probably wasn't very educated uh he was illiterate until he was older uh also archives show that he was a bit of a handful there was some drinking petty thefts disrespect for local authorities but there's no records of him actually being charged for that so he was a hooligan hooligan but take that with a grain of salt uh at 17 he traveled to abalot russia for a pilgrimage and at 18 married Preskovia Dubrovina. They had seven children and only three of them made it to adulthood, Dmitri, Maria, and Vervana. Wow, that's that's a lot. Yeah. Like, well, again, more common then, I guess, but peasants, farm families, they had a lot of children. At 28, he left his village again for a pilgrimage, but this one seemed to be the most life-changing. Some say it was to escape charges for stealing a horse. That's why he left. <laughs> Seems to be a common theme. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Some say he had a vision of either the Virgin Mary or St. Simeon of Verhoctoria. It was this particular trip to the monastery of Verhoctoria that they say that he became a different man. He came home. He he looked unkempt. He had become a vegetarian. He stopped drinking. And he became a lot more religious. And And these were all bad things to them. I don't think it was necessarily bad. It was just... Different. He came back different. Gotcha. Okay. After that, he began to leave home more often to visit these other holy sites and stuff. He went on even more pilgrimages. Around the early 1900s, Rasputin had started to gain a small group of followers in his hometown. They would pray with him on Sundays and other holy days, and they held secret meetings in a small makeshift chapel that he built in his father's root cellar. But that started raising some suspicions by the village and the village priest. I mean, yeah, if you start a cult in your basement, people are going (laughs) to notice. Starting to look very cultish, yes. There were rumors of female followers who would ceremonially wash him before meetings, which, I mean, it's it's a little weird by our standards now, but 
was probably not looking too good back then either. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, he's he's married. He has three kids. Why are these other women washing him? Washing him. There were people concerned that they were <laughs> singing strange songs they've never heard before. That's that one's a little. <laughs> who cares? But it probably <laughs> looked and sounded a little culty. Yeah. So it's, it's all sounded very cult-ish. But the biggest concern was that there were rumors of Rasputin joining something called the Clist. Now let's talk about the Clist for a second. Yes, let's. <laughs> It's only alleged that he was part of the sect, but knowing some of the allegations against him that we'll talk about in a little bit, and his beliefs on purging oneself of sin through debauchery, it could have been one of the true rumors that there were about Rasputin. Purging himself of sin through debauchery. Yes. Hang tight. <laughs> okay. We're getting there. I'm excited to hear about that. The Clist was an underground sect that split off from the Russian Orthodox Church. They practiced asceticism, which is practicing abstinence from sexual pleasures. Okay. But the belief was that they did this in ecstatic rituals, which would turn into self-flagellation or orgies. Wait, what? Wrong. (laughs) Their claim was to sin in order that you may obtain forgiveness. So, So, like... You had to have sex to be forgiven for sex. The idea was essentially to purge oneself of sin by, I guess, just taking part of everything that could be a temptation. Just get it all out of your system. Oh, yeah. Just purge it all out there. Yeah, just get it all out and then you're fine. Then you don't have to do it anymore. Another source stated that in order to be forgiven, one must have a reason to be forgiven. So maybe, you know, I'm too pure for God's forgiveness. So I'm just going to have to fix that. I've been too good of a person. (laughs) I have sinned. I have not sinned at all, so... I haven't sinned in a few days. Better get my sin on. I got some sinning to do. <laughs> uh, they also believe that Christ's birth was one of the many ways God has come to us in human form. Not the only way, but one of the ways. One of the ways. And that they were able to turn themselves into a manifestation of God. But in order to do this, they had to go through two different processes the mysterious death, and the mysterious resurrection. The mysterious death could be achieved by submitting oneself to the Holy Spirit, and only then would they no longer be tempted by the flesh and can remain sinless. The mysterious resurrection happened when the sinless individual fully received the Holy Spirit, and only then could they perform the abilities of healing, prophesizing, and raising the dead. I feel like they were receiving something. (laughs) They got something. (laughs) Um, through this sect, it's believed it's how Rasputin received his mystical powers. Through the clist. Through the clist. <laughs> there's a joke there. there. There's a lot of jokes there. Some say the clist isn't even a real sector. I mean, mostly men. Mostly men. Some say they can't find it. <laughs> Did Rasputin go through all of this? Could he have the ability to heal others? We don't know, I guess. (laughs) I mean, I'm going to say probably not, but... But he definitely used that to his advantage, and he used it to rise to power. He traveled to different cities and villages, and he helped heal others. He impressed many church officials and began to make many contacts with the Russian... With the Russian aristocracy? Yeah, that's them, the aristocracy. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I'm leaving it. This led to the eventual meeting with Tsar Nicholas. However, it wasn't until a year later that he became a more prominent member of the Romanov family. He began to impress the Romanovs with the way he helped their son, Alexei, with his hemophilia. And I'm sure that any mother who finds someone who could help with their son's serious ailments would cling to that person. And Alexandra did just that. I mean, yeah, I could see that. This brought Rasputin to even higher statuses. And because Alexei, the Romanovs' heir's illness, was kept a secret from most, because why would you tell anyone that your child has 
has hemophilia and could die easily. Yeah, I don't think that's something you want to tell the people about their heir. Right. The Russian people could not figure out why poor peasant monk was hanging out with the royal family. It didn't help either that he used his power to not only widen his influence, but to also accept bribes and sexual favors from his admirers, which kind of leads me to believe the previous rumors about his sexual natures could be true. I mean, yeah. <laughs> He even used his friendship with the Romanovs to convince them to appoint friends and supporters of his to seat to power. So it wasn't looking good. Even Nicholas's own sister voiced her concerns about how close he was looking with the Romanov children. She was quoted as saying, he's always there going to the nursery. He sits there talking to them and caressing them. They're careful to hide him from Sophia, which was their nanny. And the children don't dare talk to her about him. So, oh, so he was real creepy. I think, yeah. But again, I don't know. It's all... It's all rumors. All rumors. A nurse of the Romanov children accused him of rape. Two duchesses claimed to have found out about many illicit rendezvous with women in St. Petersburg. Even a bishop who was previously impressed by Rasputin began to hear confessions from women who had had relationships with him. And he tried to warn, warn the Tsar and Tsarina. But the Romanovs just weren't listening to it. The Tsar himself even spoke up for him and stated that the church was to not interfere with the private matters of his family. Oh. Yeah. It he was, was hardcore denial. Then. Right. Well, I don't know if it was denial or if it was, hey, he's helping my son. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, it could can, just be like, it's worth it. Yeah. I still see it from the parents' point of view. But, I mean, it was it was starting to look like Rasputin could get away with just about anything. Mm-hmm. But that all changed when he bragged to a monk that he was having an affair with the Tsarina Alexandra. Oh. Well, the monk didn't believe him at first, but then Rasputin showed him letters from Alexandra herself. I don't know what was in the letters, but it, apparently it was enough for the monk to believe him. But it was also the early 1900s. It wasn't very hard to blame a woman for anything. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> I mean, how hard is it to fake a letter, too? I mean. That's true. Yeah. He could have written him up himself, but kind of looking to me like I'd I'd believe him on right. this one. This yeah, when he was accused of raping a nun was when the Romanov fam- family finally decided or was forced to distance him- themselves from Rasputin. It was only a year later when the family would bring him back. Alexei was hemorrhaging pretty severely from a trip they had taken. I think it, he was on a boat or something and had gotten injured. And the Tsarina sent a message to the only man she knew that could help him which was Rasputin. He wrote back to her and said, God has seen your tears and heard your prayers. Do not grieve. The little one will not die. Do not allow the doctors to bother him too much. And after about a day and a half, the bleeding stopped and Alexei recovered. Wow. It was then that Rasputin had firmly planted himself back into their lives. Even with the rumors and allegations, they still kept still kept him around. And I think it was all to do because they believed they could keep Alexei alive. I mean, yeah. I mean, keeping your kid alive is a pretty powerful yeah. motivator. I mean, he's the only male heir to the Russian throne at this point. That's even more than just a so, normal parent concern then. Right. It wasn't long after that World War One began, and Rasputin actually prophesied, and I'm saying that with air quotes, to the Tsar that he should stay out of the conflict. He told Nicholas, if Russia goes to war, it'll be the end of the monarchy of the Romanovs and the Russian institutions. Nicholas didn't heed that prophecy, and they paid dearly for it. He left to fight, left his wife, and in turn, Rasputin at her side in charge. Uh, the people weren't happy about that. I they, can imagine. They know all of these stories about him now. Rasputin does not look like a great man. And now he's whispering into the ear of the Tsarina. And he's so. he's literally been left in charge of the country, right. right? Right. Politicians called the royal family marionettes and Rasputin the puppeteer. And then it was decided that Grigory Rasputin had to die. Well, there was yeah. just too much. 
and the Romanovs were clearly not going to kick him out. Mm-hmm. So Now, here's where things start getting a little weird. In 1914, there was an assassination attempt on Rasputin by a woman named Chionya Guseva, who stabbed him in the stomach in his hometown of Prokrovsky. Guseva followed a priest who denounced Rasputin for his sexual escapades and self-aggrandizement, which is bolstering oneself... You know. Gotcha. Uh, and he she, had a big head. Right. And she thought that she just helped take care of the problem, I guess. He was seriously wounded, but he ended up making a recovery. Of course he did. <laughs> That's his first, I guess, adult death-defying feat. In 1916, a group of noblemen decided that he was a threat to the empire. Again, this is about the time of World War One. The Tsarina and Rasputin was left in charge. These group of noblemen decided that he was a threat and he needed to be stopped. So they lured him to the Moik palace and they offered him wine and pastries which were laced with cyanide he initially refused but then he started having a few glasses popping some pastries and nothing happened no effect he's eating cyanide and he's just totally fine yep he i think he actually comes up and says oh my stomach let me have a sit down and then he's over it and he's dancing Wow. Yeah, no effect. So, strike two. At this point, the noblemen are getting a little anxious, a little agitated. I mean... Why won't this guy die? Yeah, this is going on for hours and he's not dead. So, one of them finally pulls out a revolver and shoots Rasputin right in the chest. Fell to the floor. Got him, you know? Yep. They dressed in his coat, stopped at Rasputin's apartment so it looked like he had gone home, in case anybody was paying attention. Right. Oh, yeah. They meet back at the palace. They go downstairs, have to take care of the body, right? They go to check on him and just like... Every horror film ever, they inch closer to the body on the floor and bam, Rasputin jumps to his feet and flees to the palace courtyard. The man is still alive. How long did he lay there? Um, From what I could read, this took quite a bit of time. So he's laying there dying for for minutes, probably almost an hour, if they had to go all the way to his home, plant his coat, (laughs) and they come back and then he's okay. Yeah, he just jumps right up and starts running. Wow. Uh, (laughs) So that's strike three. In the courtyard, they finally catch up to him. They shoot him twice in the head. That seemed to do the trick. They wrapped his body. They took him to the Bolshoi Petrovsky Bridge and they dropped him over the rails. So they okay. dropped him in the river. Now, he's dead dead now. He's like He's for real, real dead. dead. Okay. <laughs> but they say that when they found his body in the river next day, you know, where it had already frozen, solidified over the body, there were scratch marks on the ice where he tried to claw his way out. So he was not dead dead. That's rumor. <laughs> I'd like to think. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of hope he was not dead dead. Like... But how crazy would that be? Right. <laughs> Three gunshots, some cyanide. A stabbing. Some, yeah, thrown over into a sub-zero river and but still I mean, not he dead. Was, he was a pretty terrible person, so, I mean, could have been. But maybe he was truly a mystic. That's all I'm saying. Uh, I mean, something was going on, clearly, or this was the luckiest man in the world. No kidding. That is for sure. Also, I read, and I don't know how true this is, but I read that he was cremated, so there was absolutely no way he could come back to life. (laughs) (laughs) Seems like the right idea. Yeah, I think that was a very good decision on their part. Uh, Oh, and one last thing. This is truly weird to me. When Rasputin heard about the many plots to remove him from the Romanov family, he allegedly told Nicholas, if I am killed by common men, you and your children will rule Russia for centuries to come. If I am to die by one of your stock, within two years, you and your family will be killed by Russian people. Rasputin was killed in 1916 by a nobleman. The Romanovs assassinated just two years later in 1918. Whoa. Yeah. And that is the life and many deaths of Grigory Yefimovich Rasputin.
Rhonda Henson's story hasn't been reported on all that much over the years. There was an episode of Unsolved Mysteries that featured her story in it back in the 80s. Okay. But other than that, there it, it just didn't get a lot of media attention. So that's yeah, I've why I've never heard of that. Yeah, that's kind of why I wanted to bring it up. And it's such bizarre circumstances that this case really left me with more questions than answers. <laughs> but Rhonda Henson was born December 13th in 1962. She had a really normal, happy childhood. She excelled in her extracurricular activities like baseball, track, band, just tons of okay. after school activities. She was that kid that did a little bit of everything. Right. She especially had a passion for tennis. So she loved playing tennis. She made friends very easily. She was well liked. And just everyone loved her. She was just a great kid. She lived in Valdez, North Carolina, and she was freshly out of high school in 1981. And she had just started a job at Hickory Steel Company as a clerical worker. On December 22nd of 1981, she attended a Christmas party at the American Legion Hut in Hickory. And around 12.30 p.m., Rhonda leaves with two friends that she had carpooled with. They get back to the friend's house where her car is. She calls her boyfriend. I assume to let him know she's heading home. I couldn't really find out what she said to him. In fact, some sources said that she didn't call him at all. She presumably calls her boyfriend to let him know she's heading home, I guess. And she starts her 10-mile drive back to her house. As Rhonda is getting off the interstate onto Mineral Springs Mountain Road, she is just half a mile away from her home and a single shot is fired from a high-powered rifle towards her car. This bullet enters through the trunk travels through the driver's seat and pierces her heart and kills her. So it's not even from the front. It's from the back. From the back of the car. Wow. One shot. What a shot. Exactly. Around the same time at right about 1 a.m., Rhonda's mother said she woke up from a dead sleep with this terrible feeling that something had happened to her daughter. She woke her husband up and they turned on the police scanner and actually heard about her homicide on the scanner. Oh, no, 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 no. As it was happening. Oh, I cannot imagine. Yeah. Yeah, that hurts my heart. I know. When the police arrived at the scene, Rhonda's car was still running. It had rolled backwards across the other lane of traffic and came to a rest in a ditch. The driver's side door was open and Rhonda's body was laying face up in a ditch beside the driver's door with her arms placed straight down by her side. Huh. And now at first the police think, okay, this is just some random act of violence. <gasps> but then they start digging a little more and they uncover some very troubling evidence that it may not have been a random act of violence. Really? So Rhonda had been displaying some unusual behaviors leading up to her murder. Mm. Shortly after graduation, Rhonda had started just behaving strangely. According to an e- that episode of Unsolved Mysteries, Rhonda had began asking her father to go with her when she needed to leave the house. And she'd never had a problem going places on her own. She was a happy, confident person. She'd just go out and do her own thing. So this was really strange for yeah. her. And to- she never mentioned why. She never told her dad why. She did, on one errand, tell her father that she had something to tell him and it was really bad. Her father reassures her that she could tell him anything. You know, I'm a dad. I'm going to love you no matter what. You know, you can tell me yeah. whatever you need to. But she backtracks and she says, mm, I'll think about it. And then oh. didn't tell him. Also, one day she asks her mother if it's ever OK to have a relationship with a married man. Oh. 
Her mother replies, no, never. It only leads to people getting hurt. Mm -hmm. Rhonda never brings it up again, and her mother doesn't ask any more questions. And she doesn't know if Rhonda was asking for herself or because she knew a secret someone else was keeping and it was bothering her. Okay. Because remember, Rhonda did have a boyfriend. Oh, yeah. Right. So there's a chance she wasn't even asking about herself, but there's a chance that she was, too. We don't know. Also, in the weeks leading up to the murder, Rhonda starts having trouble sleeping. She would get up in the middle of the night and take unusually long showers. Her mother would occasionally be woken up by the shower running and go knock on the door and say, you know, what's what's going on? Are you okay? Yeah. And she would tell her mom it's because she felt dirty and she couldn't get clean. Huh. Well, now, that sounds like something similar a rape victim would. Exactly. Yeah. So these are typically signs of sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. So she was clearly struggling with something big right. in her last days. Police also discovered some witnesses from the night of the murder. The first witness reportedly drove under the interstate bridge by Rhonda's exit mm-hmm. and saw a blue GM Chevrolet facing north, which is the direction Rhonda would be going when she got off the interstate. They saw two white males inside the car, and the car was spotted between 12.15 and 12.30, which is just 30 minutes before Rhonda was shot. Now, this overpass is only 200 yards away from where Rhonda's body was found. Oh. Right. Okay. Later that evening, another witness saw a similar blue vehicle, this time with only one occupant, speeding away from the murder scene. He then passed (laughs) Rhonda's car and saw her slumped over the steering wheel with a man standing beside the front driver's side door. Now, the witness assumed that the driver was drunk and uh-huh. this was a couple that was, you know, fighting, yeah. switching places, something like that, and just kept on driving. They didn't do anything. The police were eager to get more information from this witness, though, so they actually had him undergo hypnosis, which was a big thing yeah. in the 80s. They had him undergo <laughs> hypnosis to see if he could recall any more information. While under hypnosis, he does remember some more. He describes the car he saw leaving the scene as a blue 70s model Chevelle. It had a messed up front end and gray primer. Hmm. He describes the man by the door as between 5'10 and 6 foot with a medium build and dark brown hair. He also recalls seeing another vehicle parked on the side of the road a short distance away Hmm. and he says it was probably a black or blue Trans Am. Now as far as evidence, the police found fingerprints on the driver's side door, touch DNA on the armpits of her sweater, and to this day no matches have ever been made to the two of them. So essentially, the picture we have here is that Rhonda is shot going up a hill. Right getting off the interstate. She slumps over the front seat. The car rolls backwards across the interstate into mm-hmm. a ditch. Someone then comes to her door, right. opens the door, pulls her out with their hands under her under armpits, her. lays her out on the ground next to the car, and then just leaves. But if they made the shot, why? Right. We're going to get to that in a second. Now, another thing they said was her driver's side window was rolled down, which that led to some theories that maybe she had pulled over for someone, mm-hmm. but her parents insist that she would never have pulled over for somebody she didn't know, especially in the middle of the night. Yeah. And we do know that the car was moving when she was shot. So if she had pulled over for someone, they didn't shoot her while the car was stopped. She would have been leaving. Right. So that may not even have been related. Okay. And to this day, they have not solved this case. No one knows who killed Rhonda. Now, there's a few points I want to talk about about this case. One is that shot, that impossible shot. Yeah. Someone fired one bullet up a steep hill at a moving car through the trunk and shot her <laughs> in the heart. How? That should be pretty... 
Oh, sniper level? I, even then, one shot and you hit your target exactly yeah. through a car That's at insane. night. Right. Police think maybe it's a stray bullet from a hunter. But I mean, who's hunting uh, at 1 a.m. next to the right. interstate? <laughs> Like, why do you um, think that's... I mean, it seems like there's a lot of deer around the interstate here, but... Yeah, <laughs> but at one in the morning. Right. That's a really bizarre time to be hunting. Yeah. And there's another theory that maybe it was meant to be a warning shot. Like, maybe they shot at the car to scare her, and then they just mm. accidentally killed her. Yeah. Because, I mean, okay, let's look at the whole picture here. If she was having an affair with a married man at work... Maybe the wife found out and the husband was trying to shut her up. Yeah. Maybe he was afraid the wife was going to find out. But then also there's the possibility that she was being sexually assaulted at work by a married man. Yeah. Which is the theory I feel fits best. Especially with her questioning the showers. Exactly, so. yeah. I feel like she was probably being abused at work. And we don't know that it was even related to her murder. I mean, these could have been two totally separate yeah. issues. There's another theory that maybe the car under the bridge had some drunk guys in it. And she cut them off or something. And mm. they were just trying to teach her a lesson, you know, scare or shoot at her. And then it went wrong. And then it went wrong. I personally think that it was probably not meant to kill her. Because why else would they go pull her out of the car unless they're panicking. Yeah. Oh my gosh, we've killed her. We didn't mean to kill her. But yeah. the logistics of putting a hit out on a teenager, though. So say she was having <laughs> an affair with a married man. He's put a hit out on her. Why is he trying to kill a teenager? And they're pretty easily manipulated. Right. I would assume. Unless, you know, it is an abusive situation. Right. And even then, why kill her? I mean, she's clearly not telling people. Also, yeah. the killer would have had to have stalked Rhonda all night long in order to get that shot. Right. I mean, they had to know exactly when she was going to be coming off that bridge. And now this was pre-cell phone. Mm -hmm. They had pagers. So I guess pagers was a possibility of, hey, she's coming you could let them know somehow so it wouldn't be impossible but it would be very complicated yeah to track this teenager because on top of not knowing what time she was going to leave this party there's also the part that you know she carpooled with her friends she drove to their house and rode with them she could have stayed the night with them they didn't, right, know, they didn't even know that she was going to be going home and just that shot, man, I can't imagine that that shot was intentional to kill her. See that, yeah, I wonder the same thing. That's such a good shot. Right. It's, if it's, it was intentional. It's too good. Yeah. Like, it's too perfect. There's there's just, personally, I think that the shot was meant to scare her. And that does make a lot more sense. Because somebody got out and pulled her out of that car and left her body on the side of the road. And I can see someone going, oh no. Right. Oh no, oh no. What have we done? This yeah. is not what we were supposed to do. So I I guess the real question is was a hit taken out on Rhonda was this just her running into bad people is bad luck I mean, I mean it could just be as simple as a road rage or I guess someone's shooting a deer at 1am right and to this day it has been 39 years since Rhonda Henson's oh, murder wow. and there are still no answers no one has ever come forward with information uh, there has never been any DNA or fingerprint matches and there is still a $20,000 reward for information oh, Wow. So if anybody out there ever has any information about this murder, Absolutely. I mean, call call your local police or your crime stoppers or whoever yeah. you can talk to. But Rhonda was, you know, a beautiful person, a great teenager, and she really deserves justice. So I really hope that eventually a match Something is made. Happens, yeah. Somehow they break this case and find out who killed Rhonda Henson. 
Thanks for listening. You can find us on Instagram at True Crimes Weird Times and Twitter at TCWT Podcast. Like us on Facebook at True Crimes and Weird Times Podcast. Email us story suggestions or share your personal true crime slash weird time stories at truecrimesweirdtimes at gmail.com. And if you feel so inclined, please leave us an iTunes review. Reviews are a free way to support the show and help us gain new followers. We'll see you next week. Bye.